Hello, and welcome to the Long Tales of Science podcast, where we interview women in high-performance computing about science, research, mentors, and career paths. I'm your host, Nicole Brewer. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Wellens, an astrophysicist who uses HPC resources to run massive simulations of galaxy formations. I'm also joined by her mother, Dr. Helen Wellens, a retired chemical engineer who used parallel computing to deploy computational modeling applications to optimize real-time refinery operations at ExxonMobil. Sarah and Helen, we're happy to have you and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Before we get started, I want to give you guys a formal introduction. Dr. Sarah Wellens is a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Interdisciplinary Exploration and Research in Astrophysics at Northwestern University. She earned her PhD in astronomy and astrophysics with a secondary field in computational science and engineering from Harvard University in 2017. Dr. Wellens studies the physics of galaxy formation using massively parallel hydrodynamical cosmological simulations. Her work focuses on the most massive galaxies, which formed in the first few billion years after the Big Bang, and on the physics of how star formation is regulated in such galaxies. Dr. Helen Wellens received her PhD in chemical engineering from Purdue University in 1990. She recently retired from her senior scientific advisor role with ExxonMobil Research and Engineering Company. Her career spanned 30 years, during which she received two EMRE Technology Awards, for designing and deploying innovative compositional models. She was a member of the Process Technology Department and Engineering Senior Technical Councils. Helen and her spouse, Michael, raised four daughters, currently 21 to 31 years of age, with careers in astrophysics, data science, mechanical engineering, and sociology. Now that we know a little bit about your careers, why don't we start by getting to know you well, a little let's, better? Let's get to know you a little better. So like why don't you tell us what you do outside of work? Well, these days it's got to be a lot of less social activities. <laughs> so I've been doing a lot of reading and playing music. My husband and I are working on a, like a Tchaikovsky duet right now, playing a lot of video games. And I like to do martial arts to stay in shape. Right now it's kickboxing, which is a lot of fun and very motivating. Yeah, absolutely. Good way to keep moving while we're at home. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm a big hiker. Our family right now has this competition of who can hike the fastest to this, our favorite ice cream store virtually. I'm doing quite well in it, I must say. (laughs) Yes, you are. On the top of the charts. Yes, we've been doing some virtual bake-offs via Zoom, back-to-back chefs. Mm -hmm. So reading, my husband and I really love to travel. So we've been planning a trip to New England, a hiking, biking vacation. We just ordered some sweet new e-bikes to help me get up those hills. Awesome. (laughs) So, yes. I love all the the activity to keep going through while we're all cooped up. Yeah. Okay, so... 
let's get started with your career and how would you describe your work during your career to someone outside your domain? So broadly speaking, I try to understand the physics of how galaxies form. When we look at a galaxy like the Milky Way, the thing that we can see is the stars because they give off light, but the stars are really just the tip of the iceberg. They're there because the gas in the galaxy was able to gravitationally collapse and form stars, which happened because of the large-scale collapse of gas and dark matter towards the center of a halo. And the rate of formation of the stars is regulated by feedback processes like supernovae, which put momentum and energy back into the gas. And so all of these processes which go into galaxy formation are very complex and coupled, and you can't really try to do a pencil and paper modeling of it. So we need to run numerical simulations to test our theories about the physics of how galaxies form and evolve. So generally speaking, that's, that's what I do. Great. Right. And I've had a, a 30 year career in uh, oil and gas industry and in research and development. And so all of my work has been around modeling how to best take uh, that black stuff crude that comes out of the ground typically and turn it into products that our consumers need, whether it's jet fuel or gas for your car or polymers to make most of the things you're wearing right now. And the way to do that is to model the composition of crude oil, which is billions of different molecules, right? But we uh, condense that to tens of thousands of components and then model the processes that are in a refinery or a lube plant to turn it into those products. And sometimes that's reactions, changing, changing the nature of the components. Sometimes it's just separation. And so much like Sarah, what I have to do is take the physical world, write it down mathematically. All models are wrong. Some are very useful, right? You do your best job of writing that mathematically. And then they're definitely true for us too. Equations you can't possibly solve yourself. So you use a computer to solve them in a reasonable time frame. Wonderful. We're going to take it back a little bit and start with how you first got interested in science or technology in the first place. What got you interested in STEM? So for me, I guess, I don't know if there's a first. I've always, I've kind of always been interested in it, partially because I've always felt like I was good at it. Uh, so the hard part was narrowing down which letter to focus on and major in in college. I discovered pretty early on that I don't enjoy proofs. So the M was out. <laughs> and then in college, when I was exploring, I found that I'm kind of more interested in the questions of what and why rather than what and how, which is what the T and E are more focused on. So I ended up doing science. Even so, I have always felt like I have more of a knack for computer science than I do for physics. So now what I do is that I use computer science techniques to work on astrophysics problems. A nice best of both worlds situation for me. Yeah. So for me, it was very difficult, actually, because my guidance counselors in high school were not of much help. It's like, oh, just do what you like. But I liked a lot of things. Right. And so I went and I looked to see what can I make money at, honestly, um, because I enjoyed I could be I was flipping a coin. Do I want to be a lawyer? Do I want to be an engineer? And I, you know, said if I went pre-law and I didn't like it, I could drive a truck. And if I went engineering and I didn't like it, I could still go to law school. So I ended up starting in engineering and just had some 
phenomenal teachers and I co-opt, which is really why I stayed with engineering. I alternated after my freshman year between learning things and applying things. So I'm very much in applications. With the R and the D, I'm very much on the development and the deploy as opposed to the fundamental science, which I'm also involved with, but in that spectrum, mm-hmm. definitely on the, the develop and apply. So I personally didn't really have a good grasp of engineering as a discipline until very late. I don't know if this is related to like my exposure as a female or not, but I'm wondering if you remember how your understanding of what engineers do developed. Yeah, for me, it was definitely through co-oping, right? Because I really had not much of a clue about what I had signed up for when I signed up for engineering in college. When I started, it was, I don't know what kind of engineering I want to do, but I know it's not going to be chemical because I hate chemistry. And of course, I have a PhD in chemical engineering, right? So that goes to show you how important your professors are, people who teach you and expose you to new things and how they expose you. By the end of my freshman year, I had this most phenomenal, you were punching cards to program, right? I had the most phenomenal chemistry professor ever. And I said, oh, maybe I would like chemical engineering. And then, I, so I better co-op is have to get some practical experience so I don't waste four years of my life. I learned how to how engineers solve problems using science and technology. I think that's one of the really challenging things about picking a major in college in general, right? Is that you're not going to really find out what the job is like until you're committed <laughs> to the major. And I think I was pretty fortunate too in that I have several research experiences before I committed to my major in astrophysics. So I got a little bit of a taste of it. Sure. So Sarah is Helen's daughter, and I'm wondering how you feel that having a mother in STEM already influenced the development of these Mm -hmm. interests for you. Yeah. I think the big thing for me was that it meant I never really encountered the question of whether women could do STEM. Like that never really occurred to me, which makes a big difference. I remember at one point kind of realizing that other people had these problems. (laughs) So definitely having, you know, my mom as a role model made a difference in that sense, for sure. But I I don't know that I was necessarily pushed to go in one direction or another, more that all these avenues were open to me and there weren't roadblocks. And then on the flip side of that, do you feel like you made a conscious effort to incorporate STEM into learning? It was very important to us that they had role models because we have four girls. Sarah doesn't even remember, so this is an embarrassing story, but she was only four years old. I think I've heard this story before. Right? We were in the pediatrician's office, and she had a male pediatrician, right? And we were sitting in the waiting room. She said, hey, mommy, when I grow up, in the doctor's office, like that woman, I looked at her, I said, I just said, or you could just be the doctor. You could be the pediatrician. And she looked at me, she said, oh, no, well, only only men can be doctors. And I was like, whoa. I said, said, wait a minute, but mommy's a doctor, right? She said, oh, but you don't help people. I help people at work a lot, but, and so, uh, you know, she had a female dentist, she had a female orthodontist. It was very important to us to expose them because even though she was in this home where she had 
a mother in re working in research and development engineering still it doesn't sink in with children they need to have that exposure to people doing different types of things. A big thing for us was because the girls qualified, they did the Johns Hopkins summer programs where they got to choose anything they wanted to study. There was lots of games and, and other things, but it was away for three weeks where there was with a bunch of smart kids where they could look at things that they didn't have an opportunity and had have exposure to during the regular school. Astrophysics was one of them. Right? Yeah, well, but I never took the astrophysics at CTY. Right, um, did that, not you. Yeah, but I will say that is where I learned that I didn't. They went everything from philosophy to cryptology to anthropology. So they come home and the best thing about those camps where they came home and they said, oh, my life's going to be so cool. I can do anything. And I think that had a big impact on them. Yeah, that's wonderful. So was computing a part of this sort of curriculum or did that come up for you later? I think the first kind of computer science class that I ever took was in high school. I took AP computer science. I, I had been exposed to computers before that, right? I was on the internet in the nineties. I had a, a Neopets account. Um, <laughs> Heck yes. <laughs> it's a familiar story to me. Yeah. Okay. And then same to you. What was your first exposure to computing? In college. You know, that course that all engineers have to take to expose you to all different types of engineering. There was a lab and they taught us Fortran. And the guy stood there, I don't know what lang computer language is going to look like 40 years from now, but I'll tell you one thing, it's going to be called Fortran. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right, actually, if you only go 20, 30 years from then, that was still the main language. And that was the very first time, right, with the card punch, very, my very first exposure. I just ordered some in the mail not very long ago, just for really? fun, actually. Wow. <laughs> little piece of and, computing history. And I still used some Fortran in some of my, in, in my senior thesis and in one of the first projects I worked on at grad school, but I, not anymore. Sure. Well, it's still, there's still plenty of legacy systems out there that use it, so it's that not is, dead yet. That is the correct word for it. Legacy. Plenty of process models, especially the where you need to do fast integration, things mm -hmm. like that, Fortran, because it's as fast as anything out there. Awesome. So when you were coming into STEM and computing, do you feel like you had any particular role models or mentors that really inspired you or shaped your path? So I have had a lot of wonderful mentors and advisors um, while I have been in astrophysics. But sadly, almost all of them have been men on theory projects anyway. So they, they've, they've certainly been wonderful and encouraging. There was, though, in my undergraduate astrophysics department, a real community feeling, I think, among the faculty when it came to taking care of the undergraduates. So I had relationships with other faculty in the department, some of whom were women who just weren't my immediate research advisor who are wonderful and that that whole community was very encouraging and the culture in that department was I think a big part of the reason that I ended up in that major. Great. Helen? So for me my very first one was that chemistry teacher Professor Ellen Dorfer my freshman year. Then really my biggest mentors would have been in uh, grad school. Rick Glad is my major professor. They're, these are all going to be males and then Throughout my 30-year career, I've got to say that almost all of my really important mentors, both career and technical, have been, were male. But 
they were always people who were passionate about what they did. That's the key. Getting more to the technical side of things, I want to know how you use HPC in your work or how you use simulation or whatever that means to you. Yes. So for us, going back to my description of how galaxy simulation form formation simulations work, galaxy formation is a really multi-scale process. It incorporates processes that happen on really large scales, like the collapse of the dark matter structure on scales of tens of megaparsecs. A parsec is a unit of distance. Thank you, Star Wars. Um, (laughs) Down to things like the launching of individual supernovae from individual stars, which are sub-parsec scales. So that's already, you know, seven orders of magnitude or so that we need to be accounting for to correctly try to predict how this galaxy is going to form. And so what that means in practice is that galaxy formation simulations are extremely expensive. We do have very clever algorithms with adaptive resolution that can try to achieve high resolution on small scales in regions that are important while also capturing the big scales. But even so, the fact of the matter is that these simulations need to be run on HPC resources and massively parallelized in order to be at all runnable. Typically, they're run on many hundreds of cores and run for weeks to months, depending on how many hundreds of cores you're using. Wow. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And um, even the analysis, which, which most of what I've been doing with these simulations has been analysis of the data, because the simulations are so rich that one simulation can spawn five papers easily, 20 papers. Even the analysis (laughs) needs to be done (laughs) on on HPC resources because the memory requirements are so large. Just to read in all the particle data for a single snapshot, right? We're talking about like millions of particles, each of which have many attributes and so on and so forth. So most of the work that I do is on HPC resources, either things like Exceed or the kind of in-house computing facilities at the universities that I've been at. Wonderful. So when you're saying that you might do a paper on like the analysis of what these simulations put out, what is an example of some output in that area? Mm -hmm. Well, so uh, I guess I can, I'll give you two examples. One paper that I just published and one that I'm working on now. Um, The paper that I just published was looking at a suite of simulations of very massive galaxies in the early universe and looking at the rotational profiles of the gas in the disk of the galaxy. Now, looking at rotation in a system is a really time-honored way to try to measure its mass, right? Because the more mass you have, the faster things have to rotate around it. This is like one of the earliest pieces of evidence for, for dark matter, for example, is looking at galaxy rotation curves. But there are other things that can affect that rotation speed besides just the mass distribution. So for example, if there are radial gradients of the turbulent pressure, that can provide an extra source of support and affect the rotational profile that you get out. So the paper that I just wrote was about you know looking at these simulations, measuring these physical effects that uh, affect the rotation curves and asking how can we, how can people who are observers who are looking at galaxies in the early universe, measuring their rotation profiles and trying to find out what mass they have, 
how can they interpret those observations and what do they need to account for? And a paper that I'm working on now is looking at really one of the major outstanding questions in galaxy formation right now is the importance and effect of supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies. We know they're there. We know they're energetically capable of strongly affecting the system, and we have pretty strong hunches about how they do that, but the particulars of the models are really poorly understood. And so I'm currently analyzing a suite of simulations with a variety of models to see what types of models are capable of, for example, stopping a galaxy from forming stars. And, you know, what are the what are the properties of such models and what does that tell us about the physical interactions between galaxies and the black holes that live within them? Okay. So I have another question. <laughs> so you create a simulation and how do you compare it to reality to oh, make sure that it's yeah. reasonable? Listen, that is a gigantic question. This is what we argue about at conferences. <laughs> so what it, what it boils down to is that there are things that we can see about galaxies in the real universe in the sky. And you want to try to convert the output of the simulation, which is a physics simulation, to the, the things that are observable. Um, so let's take an example uh, being the color of the galaxy, the color of the stars in the galaxies, right? Some galaxies are redder, some are bluer, and that has something to do with the ages of the stars in the galaxy, because the older a stellar population is, the redder the color will be because the hottest, bluest stars die first as supernovae. So you can, you can model the colors of the stars in the galaxy based on the ages of the stars and ask if we have many simulations of many different types of galaxies, do we get a color distribution that is similar to what we observe? And if you don't include black hole feedback, the answer is no, because the massive galaxies are too blue they're not red enough. So that tells us that black holes are at least a candidate for being responsible for slowing down star formation in the massive galaxies so that their star stellar population can become redder. But this is a this is a like major major question in general that we argue about is how to make the most reasonable comparisons between the simulations and the observations. Yeah, it seems like it would be a challenge to compare some massive time scale to what we can observe just in our Oh, yeah. I mean, th you've, you've really hit on another of the really fundamental challenges in doing galaxy formation, which is that the evolutionary time scales are millions of years. And so for any galaxy that you can see in the sky, you only have this one moment in its, in its entire lifetime. And so you can't really, you can never see evolution happening in real life. So what happens is that, so because the speed of light is finite, as you look further away, you're looking back in time. And so you can stitch together the populations of galaxies that exist at different distances away from us to kind of try to get a population time sequence. But that still doesn't tell you about the evolution of individual systems. So yeah, it, it's challenging. <laughs> Yeah, in the best way. Those yeah. are fascinating questions. So same to you. Let's hear about your computing experience and your, your modeling or simulation experience. Yes. My experience clearly is very different than Sarah's, right? Because I started 30 years ago 
uh, right, with punching cards and graduated to when I first started, by the time I got to research and development to a job, right in grad school, I had a Macintosh to write my papers and they had a mainframe at Purdue. But it was a PDP 11s, which are in museums now. In R&D, you have pilot units where you run and develop processes at a smaller scale before you build them in a large plant, right? And so I helped write some supervisory control to control temperature, pressure, flow rates, things like that. And then I did some applied fluid dynamics work where I actually was one of the first people in our company to work on computational fluid dynamics, right? So back then that, you know, these SGI monitors were as deep as your, as your desk and you're talking about thousands or tens of thousands of cells, which now if y'all were doing it would be, they would leverage HPCs, right? But at that time, absolutely not. Then I moved on to real-time optimization where you're talking about mixed integer and nonlinear programs, but still you're writing them on a server. I wrote and deployed some compositional process models that where you're talking about reactions, so like tens of thousands of components and hundreds of thousands of reactions. And I would write these models to run once an hour to figure out how to best run the plant or change the feed to make the products you need to make. And I did do some work in parallelizing that code to take advantage of multiple pro processors on a single server, so up to maybe 24. But you're talking about, that's, that's peanuts, right? Now, the, the folks in my group, right, I had a, 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 a large group of process modelers they use HPCs. We have several HPCs, right, uh, in uh, the R&D company. And so they would use it for things like uh, we started looking at probabilistic outcomes of process models, right, because you never know all of the inputs. You pretend they're deterministic, but they're not. And so you can run thousands of cases, right, and then take, okay, on average, what's the best thing to do? You can uh, run some DFT um, simulations where you're modeling the compounds down to the electrons, right? To, to simulate, to try to get properties of a compound that you can't synthesize and measure. Some of the folks are looking at catalysts and modeling catalysis, right, on HPCs. Uh, in upstream, they would be using it to simulate reservoirs. Those are massively parallel problems, but I personally have not used um, HPCs. Sure. So when you're doing this sort of modeling, what questions are you trying to solve? So lots of different questions, right? And a lot of times we'll write uh, fit for purpose models. So if you have a real-time optimization application, you've got a unit in the refinery and you're asking the question, what should I do in the next hour to make more money, to, make, to meet the specifications? You know, I've got to make PPM sulfur material, right, to met to match a spec, or I have a contract to make X amount, and how should I change how I'm operating my unit right now to do better in the next hour? What then does operating got, a unit mean? Okay, so you have crude oil coming into a refinery. It goes through a unit, like a distillation column, that separates it by boiling points. So each compound boils at a different temperature, right? Water boils at 100 C. And one of the first things you do is separate them by boiling points into streams, right? And then those, those narrower cuts, you'll put through a reactor that has catalysts in it and may, maybe makes, want to change the nature of the components that you're feeding it, right? 
And so in that application, then you're, you're taking a wide part of the refinery and saying, how should I change my temperature or pressure or flow rates to maximize the amount of the most valuable product, the product that I said I'm going to make at a certain specification? And how can I change it such that I still, still satisfy these very large number of constraints? So it's a, it's a mixed integer, nonlinear, very large problem with hundreds of thousands of equations, right? The, the Jacobian, the, all of these equations you solve simultaneously. So you have to understand when I change all of these variables in each equation, what's the impact on the other variables in the equation? When I deploy those models in that space, your models have to run really, really fast because you have to kind of simulate the refinery and then you have to say okay now what should i change and then you have to change it and then you have to wait time changed okay and so now you've got these process models that have hundreds of thousands of reactions and they're already quite simplified and tens of thousands of components and you have to get them to solve which is why i paralyzed some of the code in order to get it to solve in that time frame some of the models we would reduce and take uh, thousands of components to hundreds of components so it could solve in a reasonable time frame. And I said for a purpose, because when you do that, then you can't predict everything you'd like to predict. So you have to figure out what is it you have to predict well to make the right decisions. But then there's the whole other side of what are these models for? Well, you can use these models to develop new processes. When you go and you run these pilot units that, that we run, they're very expensive to run. And when you run them, typically you have to run them for a long time to see if you've accomplished what you set out to do. And so having models that you can say, you know, what if, right? What if I made a catalyst that has twice the activity and can remove sulfur twice as fast and right, what would my products look like? What would their properties look like? Then that's a completely different use, but it's the same model. But it's okay if it takes half an hour to solve, okay. This one unit, if I'm in the design phase of something, right, I'm going to, I'm about to spend billions of dollars putting steel on the ground. You want to make sure the answers. So there's a large scale of, of process models all the way from the very detailed with tens of thousands of components down to hundreds or thousands in, a, in an optimization platform that's running once an hour to actually tens of, of uh, components when you're solving the problem of, okay, I want to go and purchase crude and I need to I write this uh, multinational corporation with refineries all over the world. I've got these 40 refineries. What crude should I buy and what site should I send it to and how should those units be running to maximize profit? So then you're talking in the tens of um, things you're going to carry around for each unit, not even hundreds. So you start off with the lock, with the detailed model. And what was your favorite part of this job? Oh, lots of different favorite parts, right? I like solving problems. So my entire career was on the technical track. Although when I started my career, I was 100% solving problems. And that involved maybe... 20% of my time interacting with others, right? And at the end of my career where I was, you know, senior scientific advisor and had a lot of people working for me and was directing a lot of programs, it was 20% of my actual doing work, right? Solving problems myself and getting an 80% fulfilling that all important technical mentoring role and directing programs. So 
it ran that, right? The organization needed different things for me at different times in my career. And I was fortunate enough to be able to, you know, dig my heels in. Yes, fine, but you can't take this away from me. <laughs> because if I can't do this much of hands-on solving problems, I won't be happy. And so the organization, luckily, it's a huge umbrella and there's room for a lot of people under the tent. And so I was able to stay on the technical ladder throughout my career. Yeah, that sounds a lot like the progression from uh, grad student to postdoc to faculty, where you end up spending all of your time on committees and meeting with your graduate students. <laughs> That's right. When I had my going away, it was, you know, the majority of the comments, yes, about all this great technical work, but it was a lot of talk about the culture that I created in my group and what a hole there was going to be because I wasn't going to be there to mentor and provide that support for people in the organization. That's awesome. What do you feel are the things that made you a successful mentor? Humility. Servant leadership is huge. But uh, being a mentor to me is all about making sure people have the support that they need so they're not left out hung to dry. <laughs> uh, you provide some amount of, of protection to them, and then you let them go do. You empower them to do and solve the problem as they see, see fit, and you're there, and you don't just abandon them, right? You make sure you stay engaged, and you, oh, but did you think about that? You ask the right questions, you don't give them the answer, you make sure that they're solving the problem, but you help keep them on track and make sure they're thinking about the big picture items that they don't get because they don't, haven't had the experience, right? So you provide that context to why it's so important to solve this problem and the things that the solution had better be able to provide won't be useful. Yeah, great. I've sort of asked this already, but maybe I'll ask it again in a different way. But Sarah, <laughs> do you feel like either there's certain things that you do to be a good mentor or mentorship that you've received that really brought out success? I think when I was in graduate school, I had a really good example of the power of positive reinforcement. Um, I think a lot of the, a lot of the feedback that one gets like in research or in graduate school is negative, like, oh, this didn't work. You could do this better. And, and people are telling you that you could do something better because they want to help you to make it better. But I have experienced, and I try to put this into practice with the students that I work with now, that it is so powerful to tell someone explicitly that they did a good job on something or that they had a, a really good idea it's really empowering and motivating, at least for me. So that I think is really important trying to put into practice. I couldn't agree more with what Sarah said, the importance of letting people know they're doing a good job and giving them opportunities to get out in front of people to explain mm. their work. Mm -hmm. So what do you feel like your greatest career challenges have been? And it doesn't have to be specifically about being a woman, but it can, it's very open-ended. One challenge that I have had and still have is, um, and, I, and I think this is somewhat gendered, that, you know, when, I, when we're in a, in a group 
situation, trying to figure something out, or at a conference discussing some question, or someone's giving a talk and you might want to ask a question or maybe not. I feel that the bar of self-confidence that I have to reach to ask a question or make a comment is higher than other people's. Like I, I tend to speak less than other people do because I need to feel sure of myself before, before I speak. And it seems like other people don't have that problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is certainly something that I'm working on and, and not allowing myself to be talked over is another thing that I'm working on. They're not doing it on purpose most of the time, but it still happens. Yeah. I always like to drive home. Like we've overcome a lot of things. It's often the small things. It's never intended to be negative, but small things happen that are still sort of detrimental to participation in the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and so how about you, Helen? Are there any particular challenges that you feel like you've learned from or had to overcome? Yeah. So I think that, um, one of the big factors of my success in the technical organization, honestly, is that I didn't care enough about my career. <laughs> I cared more about what I was working on and I cared more about making sure I was able to get what I needed. And if that slowed down my career, then that was fine. So I was constantly pushing the envelope of the organization's official guidelines Right. So we had, we raised four daughters, right? I stayed home for six months with each of them. I postponed my, with Sarah, I postponed my initial um, start date so I could be home for the six months with the others. And there was no policy that said I could do that. But I would, the big thing was I found that if you went into your, your supervisor's office and didn't just tell them you had a problem, but told them you had this issue and how you plan to address it, they were usually like, oh, okay, <laughs> because you, you gave them a solution. So yes, there's, they've got all kinds of policies now about being able to stay home for extended periods of time. But I guess part of it was my hard enough skin that sometimes I think when I was being talked over or, or insulted, it just like water off a duck's back is what many times people would describe my attitude. It's like, yeah, well, whatever. And then I'd say what I wanted to say anyway. So I usually ended up being heard. Looking back, if I'd been focused on my career and going up the ladder more, I would have realized I had a big problem because I was what was known back uh, in the day as a trailing spouse because both my husband and I were a dual career couple and he was going up the ladder. And back when you had a couple working for the organization, right, if one was, was going up the ladder, the other was, you know, kept happy. But they didn't worry so much about developing their career and because of that. I was left alone, if you will, to do what I loved and develop a deep expertise. I would have never ended up, I don't believe, on that senior advisory executive ladder, technical ladder, if I hadn't been, instead of you know, being moved around every couple of years, which was what they did with people when they were developing them, they let me develop a deep expertise in what I was doing. And because of that, later in my career, I was asked to develop strategies in that area and vision and then to execute it. And because I had developed such a large network, so I was doing the perfect fit thing for what I wanted to do eventually. But if anybody had told me back then that I was labeled a trailing spouse, I would have been very <laughs> happy. Okay. You know, and then when I was given those roles of helping the organization, you know, being 
in charge of multiple programs. I would be the only woman in the room doing that in a large room full of men. So that's the biggest challenge in the second half of my career. Actually, once I was given those roles and I was put in front of people and people saw, oh, Helen really handles herself well in front of people. It was trying to move me off the technical ladder so Mm -hmm. that I could be developed. I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that, right? This is what I want to do. I'm doing what I love. Please let me continue doing this. But for a significant amount of time, any woman who showed potential was moved off the technical ladder into the management ladder because of the glass ceiling, right? And they were trying to do good. They were doing it for a good perceived reason. But as a result, I look around, you know, toward the end of my career, where are your senior technical, it's a technical organization, right? Where are your senior technical role models? And there were very few. And so I was very happy that I dug my heels in and, and, and kept to that because that's what I was in the last five, 10 years, I would hear over and over and over going, oh, Helen, it's so important. You're in this role. You're one of the few females. And they're, they're fixing that. And I see them keeping women on the technical letter now. But those, I would say, are the, the biggest things. Yeah, you'd think that it'd be also important to keep people that are good at management and at speaking and communicating, even if you're in the technical realm, but this becomes important the more senior you are anyhow. You better believe it because when you're on the senior technical ladder, it's all about influencing without authority. It's all, that's all it is. I have no authority, but I make things happen, mm-hmm. right? Because people trust me. And why do they trust me? Because they trust my technical expertise and they trust that I know the organization well enough to be having a general interest view. So to that end, what do you feel that your strengths were that led to your success in your career? Interpersonal skills and communication. Engineering isn't just about numbers. If you can't communicate your ideas, if you can't develop a vision and help execute it, you've got nothing. And so, Sarah, for you, uh, what do you feel that your strengths are that make you successful? I do think that I'm a very good science communicator. Uh, I think I I agree. Very good talks when I go to conferences, um, and I think this has helped me significantly in my career so far. And it's definitely an important skill for a faculty member, (laughs) if anybody's hiring out there. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think you do an absolutely great job at at talking about your research. I want to know what motivates you all in your work. I think the biggest thing is having a community of scientists, like around the world, who I see at conferences, who are all kind of working on similar problems and who are interested in each other's work. And I know that like when I publish this paper, you know, other people are going to read it and they're going to, you know, think about what I've done and incorporate it into their work. Um, So I think having this kind of global community of scientists is generally quite, quite motivating to me. And I think the questions that we're working on are interesting, which is uh, pretty important as well. Definitely. And to that end, do you have any travel stories or any favorite conference places that you've been to? Oh boy. Definitely the coolest one that I've been to was a conference in South Africa. Uh, It was right near one of the national parks. And so, you know, when we were off uh, of the conference, we like went on safari. That was fun. Those are, those are bygone days now. 
uh, yeah, no, it's, it's one of the really great side effects of an academic career is I think you have no choice but to become kind of like a global citizen because you meet people from all over the world um, and you travel to a lot of places for conferences and things like that. So that's been, that's been a really cool aspect of my career. Definitely. Helen, what, what made you excited about your work or motivates you in your work? Uh, I think Sarah nailed it. It's about the people. Every retirement send off I've ever been to, uh, it's, it, you talk a little bit about the work, but at the end of the day, it's about the people being in a community of really excellent technical people that are just excited about what they do, work with integrity, treat each other with respect. There, you can't underestimate the importance of being in a community and kind of pulling together to solve a, a large challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I also find that I tend to thrive on collaboration and that I do not feel as motivated when I am just working by myself. Definitely. So do you all have some advice to send off with our listeners? I think the, the big thing for me that I learned in graduate school and that has stood me well, I think there's a saying, comparison is the thief of joy. I think generally like comparing yourself and the way that you feel about yourself and your achievements to what you can see of other people, it's just the road to imposter syndrome. It's not productive. It doesn't lead to you bettering yourself necessarily. It just leads to you feeling terrible most of the time because I, I heard someone say a year or two ago, like you're comparing your insides to other people's outsides. And I think the most important thing to do is to just work on what you're working on, try to get better at what you're doing, focus on your own work and, and stop like looking around at what other people are doing and how awesome they are and like feeling bad about yourself by comparison because you're just going to like waste brain cycles on that. It's not helpful. It's an important way to get through grad school or like academic careers in general when you're constantly being compared to other people. Definitely. Yeah, so my biggest piece of advice to young folks in their career is to find something that really excites you to work on Make sure you find the intersection of that with a problem that needs to be solved. And then focus on that. Pay attention to the edges of your field because it's the intersection between fields is where the fun usually happens. Mm -hmm. And always be willing to keep a, a foot in somebody else's playground. That's great advice. I like the part about the intersection of disciplines. That's yeah. definitely personally a... Uh, favorite spot of mine to be in is those interdisciplinary niches. So thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, thank it, you for having us. It was absolutely wonderful talking to you guys. I yes. learned so much from you. And how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to get to ask you questions? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I have a uh, professional website that you can visit and you can, of course, email me as well. And yes, I've provided my email address as well to Nicole. Okay. All right. Those things will be provided in the show notes. And if you stick around, you can learn some actionable items for how to keep in touch with the women in HPC community.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Long Tales of Science. This podcast was produced by Women in HPC at Purdue, an organization dedicated to promoting and advancing the representation of women in high-performance computing. We are a chapter of an international organization by the same name, and you can sign up to be a member at womeninhpc.org. Follow us on Twitter or sign up for our email list to keep up to date with the new podcast episodes and semi-annual virtual meetings. If there's a guest speaker, including yourself, you would like to nominate, please send us an email. And finally, subscribe and rate the podcast on your favorite platform or listen on the web at www.breaker.audio. Until next time, I'm your host, Nicole Brewer, and it's been a true pleasure introducing you to amazing women in science, engineering, and technology.